Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 8, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding all manner of appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. This week, we're previewing the second half of the Supreme Court term, specifically with a focus on Ninth Circuit appeals. As the justices wind down their short midterm recess, they'll soon hear and rule on a range of consequential Ninth Circuit matters relating to arbitration, securities fraud, free speech, and much more. And just as interesting to note are some high-profile, politically charged Ninth Circuit cases the High Court likely won't squarely address this term, ones on immigration policy and transgender military service. To speak on all of that, we'll be joined by a good friend of the podcast, someone who finds himself working on the sorts of appeals that wind their way through the Ninth Circuit and up to SCOTUS, Blaine Evanson. He's a partner with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher in their Orange County office. He'll join us in just a few minutes. And before forecasting the Supreme Court's second half, we'll take a few minutes to look ahead to the evolving Ninth Circuit, which includes now two Trump appointees and awaits the confirmation of five more currently pending nominees, three of whom were just announced at the end of January to fill seats in California. We'll be joined by Hirsch Voraganti. He runs the federal judiciary-focused blog, The Vetting Room, to talk a bit about the state of conservative picks poised to affect something of an ideological rebalancing of the circuit. Before hearing from our guests, though, a couple reminders as always. First, don't forget CLE credit is readily available for listeners of the podcast. It can be found through our site, dailyjournal.com. Once you listen to the show, just log on to dailyjournal.com and find a short true-false test, the link to which should be on the page where this podcast appears. Once you've completed that, an hour of California CLE credit can be yours. We very much hope that listeners take advantage of that opportunity, both because We want to help you square away those pesky CLE requirements, and also because folks taking those CLE tests is a good way to help us continue to make available this podcast outside of our usual paywall. Also, don't forget to look for the podcast on the various streaming avenues where you might typically tune in to such media. If you search for Weekly Appellate Report on the podcast app and really anywhere that you tend to get your podcast, you should be able to find us there. And doing so, finding us, uh, subscribing to us, leaving a rating or a review, it's very helpful. It also helps folks find the program. Now it's time for our opening briefs. Though still in the midst of that midterm recess, the Supreme Court saw some action yesterday with two 5-4 orders issued in controversial matters. Among other things, the tandem issuances confirmed Chief Justice John Roberts' new role as swing justice. He joined his more liberal colleagues in blocking a Louisiana abortion restriction from taking effect, but sided with the conservative wing in allowing an Alabama execution to go ahead notwithstanding a free exercise challenge from the Muslim inmate who sought to be accompanied by an imam in the execution chamber. In Ninth Circuit news, two nominees, of whom more in a moment, passed through the committee stage of their confirmation and moved one step closer to seats on the bench in Washington and Arizona. Those nominees are Eric Miller, partner with Perkins Coie in Seattle, and Bridget Beatty, currently a federal magistrate judge for the District of Arizona. On Wednesday, a circuit panel sided with farm workers and applied a plaintiff-friendly joint employer standard in the case involving seasonal workers from Thailand who were working in Washington orchards on H-2A visas. They had complained of filthy, uninhabitable conditions at their provided housing, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission brought suit against two major fruit growers who, in their defense, said an intermediary contractor was more responsible for the housing conditions and thus should bear the liability. But in a unanimous opinion authored by Judge Watford, the court concluded that the growers could be liable as joint employers because mainly the level of control the companies exercised over the workers was quite high. And on Monday, two rulings issued favoring 
plaintiff in a race discrimination and contracting matter involving cable companies Comcast and Charter Communications. African-American owner and operator of a collection of television networks had unsuccessfully sought a carriage contract with the defendants and thereafter sued, alleging the companies violated the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which bars racial discrimination in contracting. The ruling now allows the suit to proceed, barring a Supreme Court appeal. In the California High Court, saw a fairly busy week. The court issued four opinions, two in death penalty appeals, and two civil results. In one of the capital cases, the court unanimously voted to overturn a death sentence based on prosecutorial misconduct and jury selection. But three justices, Justice Liu, Justice Cuellar, and Pro Tem Justice Perlis, thought that didn't go far enough and wrote that the prosecutor's dismissal of African-American jurors merited a new trial altogether. Another case clarified some of the state anti-slap laws contours, namely how broadly the law sweeps to protect speech on so-called matters of public interest. The court unanimously held that, for the most part, the city of Carson changing its bargaining agent in pursuit of an NFL franchise was not a matter of public interest, and thus that an anti-slap motion couldn't be used to block suit over the action. Finally, in a reversal yesterday, a unanimous opinion concluded that employees cannot sue third-party payroll companies over unpaid wages that rather such shoots must be directed at employers. The court also heard oral argument in a handful of cases this week and for more in-depth coverage on all of that and quite a bit more. Don't forget to dive into the pages of our newspaper and, of course, find us online at dailyjournal.com. Hirsch Voriganti is the principal and founder at the Voriganti Law Firm in Arlington, Virginia, and he keeps very much abreast of all the federal court nominations at his blog, The Vetting Room, which you can find at vettingroom.org. He joins us now to chat about the five Trump nominees who might soon take their place on the Ninth Circuit bench. Hirsch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, your blog, Vetting Room, which can be found at vettingroom.org, provides thorough coverage of federal judicial court nominees and, and of the federal judiciary more broadly. Certainly you've been kept busy these last couple of years, keeping up with the administration's judicial nominees. Most recently, as pertains to the Ninth Circuit, two nominees passed through committee yesterday. Who are these folks? Uh, Tell me about these uh, two nominees. Sure. So the two nominees the Senate Judiciary Committee voted out yesterday were uh, Judge Bridget Beatty, uh, who is nominated for an Arizona seat on the Ninth Circuit, and that's the seat that Judge Silverman gave up in late 2016. And then the other is Eric Miller, who's going to, if confirmed, fill the seat that Judge Tolman vacated when he took senior status last year. So those were the two that were voted out yesterday. Do you have any thoughts on the potential confirmation path forward for those two? Is there really any suspense at this point when it comes to Senate confirmation, considering now there's a bit more breathing room for the president's uh, nominees? Well, it, it, it's hard to say because, I mean, this is really, the Trump administration is the first one to not have to deal with the judicial filibuster at all. Mm-hmm. So they, you would think that given the fact that they have a Republican majority in the Senate, that there should really be no question at all and that these nominees will get confirmed. But that was what people had assumed, I think, even last Congress, and that wasn't always the case. Specifically, a Ninth Circuit nominee actually went down uh, because the votes weren't there on the floor to confirm. So, I mean, there's always a little bit of a risk of that. 
Judge Beatty, I think, will be confirmed with a bipartisan majority without too much trouble. Her nomination is not really considered that controversial. And she was the only nominee, uh, only appellate nominee voted out yesterday who attracted bipartisan support. I anticipate that she's going to get a fairly wide margin on confirmation. And the other nominee, uh, Mr. Miller, appellate practitioner currently up in Seattle at Perkins Coie, you you had written in your blog, he might get some pushback, though, from, for instance, his home state senators and also other Democrats, specifically for at least uh, some work the senators say he had done at Perkins Coie that tended to work against the, the sovereignty interests of Native Americans in that state. Can you tell me a bit, a bit more about that? Did I have that right? That That's right. So Mr. Miller, who's a partner in the Seattle office of Perkins Coie, he has really made a name for himself uh, working on issues of tribal sovereignty. Specifically, the two cases that he argued before the Supreme Court were both involving issues of tribal sovereign immunity, one of which he won and one of which he lost. The two cases are Lewis versus Clark and then Upper Skagit Indian Tribe versus Lundgren. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But the two cases essentially involve the sovereignty of tribal governments with regard to suits either against them or either against members of the tribe in his individual capacity. So his positions in those suits have consistently been to limit the tribal sovereign immunity, and I think that a lot of groups have taken that as a sign that his record is, for lack of a better term, quote-unquote anti-Native American. And that that's kind of how it's been interpreted. And I know that that's where a lot of the pushback is coming, along with the uh, opposition of the home state senators. Uh, but I should say he is unanimously voted as well-qualified, I understand, by the American Bar Association. Is that right? Yes. Let's just chat for a minute as well about the, the three nominees that might take seats in the state of California. We have two Daniels, Daniel Brest and Daniel Collins, also Kenneth Lee. One of the more interesting things about these nominations seem to not really have a whole lot to do with the candidates themselves. It was really kind of the behind the scenes pushing and pulling between California's home state senators and the White House that seemed to be going on. A couple of these gentlemen, Dana Collins and Kenneth Lee, had already previously been, I think, sort of not officially nominated, but announced. They had been officially nominated. Actually. Okay. Um, they they were they were nominated back in October of 2018, along with another gentleman, Patrick Dumite, right. who uh, has now been nominated for a district court seat in California. Okay, and the idea had sort of been that that the California senators in the White House might come to some sort of agreement on three consensus picks. It seems safe to say these three picks are not those consensus selections, right? I would agree with that. Uh, given the statement the senators have put out, they're they're clearly not happy about this package of nominees. Okay. Well, then tell me a bit about um, the these three nominees. Any thoughts you might have on on them and their their background generally, where where they come from, and how their addition to the court could impact its the ideological composition. Sure. And I mean, the Ninth Circuit. I and you probably see this more often than I do, but the Ninth Circuit. I think unfairly somewhat gets a bad rap for being a liberal court or a rogue circuit, if you will. And 
it's hard to see these three nominees as anything other than kind of a concerted effort from the White House's perspective to add more conservative voices to the Ninth Circuit. And looking at the background, all three of these nominees, Judge, uh, excuse me, Mr. Lee, Mr. Collins, and Mr. Breath, uh, all have strong resumes and, you know, good backgrounds in litigation, but they also have, I think, records that suggest that they will be fairly conservative on the bench and that they will likely, their votes would be a lot more similar to say it. Judge O'Scanlan than they would to Judge Reinhardt. Were the the home state senators, Diane Feinstein and Kamala Harris, or their Democratic counterparts to, to try to look for some leverage to, to um, defend against the confirmation of, of any of these nominees? What what might be out there for them to, to grasp onto? I understand Senator Feinstein mentioned the sort of litigate, litigation background of, of Mr. Collins as, as you know, quite corporate friendly. I think some former writings by uh, Mr. Lee regarding affirmative action have also been referenced. Do you have any thoughts on anything that could potentially trip these uh, nominees up? Well, I think, again, the biggest issue is going to be the issue of blue slips. Now, Chairman Graham, as Chairman Grassley did before him, has taken the position that blue slips are not going to result in a nominee being blocked from a hearing, at least as far as appellate nominees go. But as um, was once said to me, so this is not actually my quote, there are blue slips and then there are blue slips. You know, there's there's something very different to ignoring a blue slip from, say, Senator Tammy Baldwin versus ignoring the blue slip from the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee and ignoring the blue slip from another rising star in the party who's also a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I think one of the reasons why these nominees took so long to be nominated, first of all, is because I think the White House was pushing for some kind of package, and I think the senators were trying to negotiate over that. But now that these three nominees have been put forward, I think they likely will get hearings. The real issue is whether Senator Feinstein and Senator Harris can convince either one Republican on the committee or Republicans on the floor to support their push to block confirmation. And that's really the key here is whether they can argue that they were cut out of this process and as such, individuals such as Senator Murkowski or Senator Collins or Senator Scott should be voting against these nominees. I think in some cases where nominees are sent forward without blue slips, the issue is not just the blue slips, but that if you have a senator in your corner, they can carry arguments against you and they can kind of build the case for your confirmation. I think the nomination of Brian Bounds kind of illustrated the difficulty a nominee can have when, you know, your home state senators who are supposed to be championing your nomination are not behind you. You don't really have someone in your corner, so to speak, in the Senate who's pushing for your nomination. So as such, I think it will definitely be a difficulty that all of these nominees will face. Whether they will overcome that or not, I think it's a, we'll have to see. Right. Yeah, Bounds' nomination pulled just before he was set to, to be here before the Judiciary Committee, right? He was actually pulled before his final confirmation vote. Okay, well, if we maybe look forward and assume that the home state senators can't prevail upon any of their Republican colleagues to to side with them and, and hold up at any of these nominations, and, and these three and the other two go forward to add to Judges Bennett and Nelson already on the Ninth Circuit, Yeah, how much do you think we could say the Trump administration will have remade the Ninth Circuit into something different than 
than what it's, what it's been this past generation? I mean, it's, it'll certainly have an impact, but I mean, the Ninth Circuit, to be honest, is just so large that any new judge on that circuit is going to have far less of an impact than a new judge on, say, the D.C. Circuit or on the First Circuit. So, I mean, it's definitely going to have an impact. How strong an impact, I think it still remains to be seen. I think what's also the case is that these nominees are also individuals, so you don't know that they're all going to be voting the exact same. And judges appointed by both parties, I think, have a way of surprising people once they get on the bench. You have judges who are expected to be deeply, deeply conservative who end up being you know, either moderate or actually left of center, and then you have the opposite happen. Judges appointed who you expect to be strong liberals who turn out to be anything but. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether they'll actually toe the line once they get confirmed. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to find out, and along the way, folks can check out your blog, bettingroom.org, for uh, any updates and more information. But uh, for now, Hirsch Voraganti from the Voraganti Law Firm in Arlington. Thanks very much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. From the long-term evolution of the Ninth Circuit, we turn now to a more immediate future. Supreme Court terms second half, and specifically what to look for in terms of appeals the high court is considering that arose from our appellate neck of the woods. Blaine Evanson is here now to discuss that. He's partnered with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher in their Orange County office. Also, he's a member of their appellate and Supreme Court practice. Blaine, welcome into the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so as the second half of the, uh, the SCOTUS term was shaping up, at least in, in terms of Ninth Circuit appeals potentially being heard, it, it had seemed like there might be some some fireworks, some particularly political kind of hot potatoes making their way up to the high court from, from the Ninth Circuit. But um, as we've passed now into to February, some of those most politically explosive cases seem like they might not make it to uh, the Supreme Court's docket proper here this term. Let's talk about a couple of those cases that, that are still pending before the court uh, and that have gotten a lot of news attention and, and um, attention from court watchers generally. Probably the two most prominent ones relate to um, the administration's attempted rescission of that DACA immigration program and um, the other relating to the administration and the Department of Defense's uh, transgender policy or transgender ban. Starting with, with DACA, it's been a while now, almost a year and a half, I think, since the administration sought to end the Obama-era DACA policy. The district court in California prevented the Department of Homeland Security from doing that. The Ninth Circuit upheld that, ruling the preliminary injunction that was granted. Now, the case has been considered by the Supreme Court, I think, twice at conference, but hasn't been granted, at least at this stage. I understand your firm is working on this case, so you probably can't say a whole lot, but to the extent you have thoughts to share on this case or where it's at in terms of its appellate life cycle. Uh, what, what are those thoughts? Yeah, so this is a very interesting case. Our My partner, Ted Boutros, is counsel for the respondents, the uh, the dreamers at issue in the case. And, you know, I can't comment on the case itself, only to note that, note our position, uh, was, which was that the court should deny review this term. Uh, given that the decision below is, as you mentioned, on a preliminary injunction, preliminary and in, in, in interlocutory. And even if the court were to be interested in the case, uh, my sense is that the court has already f- filled its docket for the term. They usually grant the last cases for the term in about mid-January. So at this point, I don't think that it would get heard this term anyway. 
So now that other very prominent case involving, it's a sort of a collection of cases involving the Department of Defense's move to implement some policy that would prevent many transgender individuals from from enlisting into the service, excuse me, into military service. And I believe um, would affect many transgender service members serving presently. Uh, That case or the, the one that's worked its way through the Ninth Circuit is sort of at a equally preliminary stage. The district court in the Western District of Washington granted a preliminary injunction preventing the the policy from going into place. The Ninth Circuit upheld that. So the Ninth Circuit upheld that, and the administration had had sought to to sort of jump over the Ninth Circuit while the Ninth Circuit heard the appeal and kept the injunction in place. The Supreme Court denied that. It didn't accept review sort of before the Ninth Circuit got a chance to rule, but it did lift the stay and, and, and stop the preliminary injunction from from preventing the policy from going into effect. I understand it's it's still not quite into effect because there's one other case involving the the policy. But as you understand it, what's the the status of that policy and what's going on with the the consolidated appeals through the Ninth Circuit? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really interesting case, obviously very impactful and hot button. Um, in the Karnowski case, uh, what the Justice Department, the Solicitor General, actually sought certiorari before judgment. It's a very extraordinary thing that has only that is not used very often, but the Solicitor General has used it actually in a couple cases this term, including um, in the DACA case that you mentioned uh, at the outset. And essentially, the Solicitor General is trying to circumvent the usual appellate process. You know, generally goes from the district court, you go up to the the Court of Appeals, and you get a final Court of Appeals ruling and a judgment from that court, and only then petition for certiorari. And the Solicitor General, in the Karnowski case and a couple other cases, uh, has tried to go directly to the Supreme Court and leapfrog, uh, in particular the Ninth Circuit, for you know the obvious reason that the, the Ninth Circuit is not very uh, friendly to the Trump administration, at least presently. Um, and so this, the Trump versus Karnowski case is really emblematic of that. And, and as you mentioned, the, uh, the petition was denied uh, just a couple weeks ago, but the court granted a stay allowing the administration's policy to remain in effect while the appeal runs its course, because the Ninth Circuit in the Karnowski case hasn't ruled yet. Um, and I found that decision really interesting. Um, as you probably know, the, it takes only four votes to, for the justices for the court to grant certiorari, and it takes five votes for the court to issue a stay. And so although the petition was denied, so there were not four votes to grant the petition, there were five votes to, uh, to issue the stay. And, the, and Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan all said that they would not have granted a stay. They would have denied the application. And so it's clear that Chief Justice Roberts and the four more conservative justices voted to grant a stay, but could not. there were not votes to uh, grant the petition. So you know, it's it's hard to know what to read into this. Certainly on the merits, we don't know where five of the justices come out. But it's interesting that uh, there were not enough justices to allow the Solicitor General to leapfrog the Ninth Circuit, even though they were willing to stay the district court's injunction while the appeal runs its course. Yeah, I mean, the vote of the, the five justices does have the effect of allowing the policy to go into place, which, as you say, the, you can't totally deduce the judges, justices' thoughts on the merits, but um, does that seem to indicate that there would be five votes if the Ninth Circuit say, you know, 
continues to rule against the administration's policy, that there will be five votes in the future. This case made it up to the high court to to vindicate the policy because if it's gone into effect at that point, that would require the court to then, I guess, discontinue it. And it would seem like they thought that would be the potentially likely outcome. They would want to sort of maintain the status quo of it not going into effect at this stage. So I suppose to what extent does this ruling tip the potential hand of the court were to hear the case on the merits? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And, you know, it's always always the question when you see the court issue a stay is how much to read into that. And and I, I don't know what to read into it here. Um, it's a very interesting policy because you know, the way that it has played out in the, tr- in the press has followed largely from, you know, President Trump's statement that transgender individuals will not be allowed to serve in the military in any capacity. But the, my understanding of the process that the Defense Department went through and, and the nature of the policy is much more nuanced that it's, and I'm not an expert on this, but that those uh, transgender individuals would be allowed to serve, but those with what's called gender dysphoria would not be allowed to serve because the Defense Department's determination was that that carries with it a whole host of mental health concerns that their people uh, determined were disqualifying for military service. So, um, you know, again, I know nothing about any of this, so I don't have a view on the matter, but it's, it's a lot more complicated than it has played out in the press. And the five votes to stay may just be a reflection of the justices wanting this to go through the regular reasoned adjudicative process with a with a decision by the Ninth Circuit before they weigh in and decide the merits of the of the case. It also seems helpful for a court that sort of just went through one term ago, pretty high profile fight between the Ninth Circuit and the Trump administration and the, the travel ban litigation. A good opportunity for the court to at least this term not really weighed into to the same sort of, of thicket and, and let this case sort of run through or just perco- percolate up a little bit uh, a little bit more before it it uh, it steps in here. It seems like that's maybe partially in, in the court's mind too. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think the court is not hungry for hot button issues right now. Although they took you know they took a, se- a Second Amendment case a few weeks ago, so who knows? But I. I tend to agree with you that the court is not itching to get into these really hot button issues right now and would rather would much rather heal from the uh, contentious confirmation uh, proceedings from last year. Okay, one case that's not exactly hot button but definitely presents a pretty fascinating question and I imagine one that isn't reviewed all that terribly often by the high court is um whether or not a, a an appellate judge can write an opinion essentially from beyond the grave almost or posthumously in the Ninth Circuit appeal an en banc ruling written by Judge Stephen Reinhardt. And of course, he wrote it before he passed away, but the opinion didn't come out until just after he had died. And the, I guess, critical piece is that it was a six to five ruling in the en banc decision. And the five concurrences, the the, the 11 votes agreed, but the five that Reinhardt had written had gone too far in the favor of the plaintiffs in this employment case dealing with uh, gender pay equity. So obviously, if someone else had had to write that opinion, it might have come out entirely different on the the resulting law. More to the question of what exactly the court might wrestle with if it takes this case. I mean, has it ever considered that question of whether an opinion that comes out after a judge has passed on is still viable law? Do you think this is the sort of question the court 
will likely take up? Thoughts in general on that case? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very fascinating case, and it's it's you know it's especially controversial because it's Judge Reinhardt, which you know who was famously famously did battle with the Supreme Court over many many years, would uh, as you know, one of the most liberal judges on, on the most liberal court, the Ninth Circuit. So it's especially interesting given that he's the one who authored the opinion and then passed away. The court did take, the court has never the question whether a lower court judge who passed away before the decision was issued needed to be disqualified. They, in 1960, the court ruled that the Second Circuit violated the federal law regarding um, the composition of appellate panels by permitting a judge who sat on the en banc panel but, panel but who had retired before the decision uh, to join an opinion. The court ruled that if a, if a judge retired before the en banc decision was issued, he could not join the opinion. And so I think the argument in this case is that that's you know, all the more true when the judge, the authoring judge, uh, passes, away, passes away, not just retires, uh, before the opinion is issued. The Supreme Court does not count the votes of justices who pass away before a decision. That's been its practice. But this has not really been, there's not a lot of case law here and not a lot for the, uh, for the justices to go on. But it certainly makes for an interesting, uh, interesting issue. I was going to ask one, one other question about that Reinhardt case. I mean, it, if you're, say, an appellate practitioner, in that case is one you're working on and you're arguing really for either side and there's a sort of a dearth of, of precedent, as you say, there's at least maybe one case that can be analogized to, but if there aren't a whole lot of cases out there that are really on point or anywhere too close to on point, what's kind of the strategy of an appellate attorney there? Well, I think the way that the way that it's been presented in the cert petition as being just so fo- so far outside the norm it, that it needs to be it needs that it offers the Supreme Court a chance to to establish the rule and to do so in a case where the facts are so stark. It's an en banc decision with, you know, I think there were a number of decisions from the en banc court in a very important, a, a very important issue and a very famous or infamous, depending on your, your perspective, judge authoring the, the decision. And, you know, there was the, there was a footnote in the opinion that said that the case had been voted on and the opinion had been drafted and everything before Judge Reinhardt passed away. But, you know, there's, there's the perception and, you know, it's noteworthy that after Justice Scalia died, for example, even though the court had voted on several cases that, uh, that uh, bef- you know, before he passed away, um, the court didn't count Justice Scalia's vote in any of those decisions, and some of them uh, became 4-4 affirmances. And so the Supreme Court, in its role, has sort of gone overboard in making sure that, even though Justice Scalia had already cast his vote, and making sure that there's no, you know, hint of of impropriety from a decision being issued after the death of the of the judge, and so I I suspect that if the case uh, if the Supreme Court takes the case and this gets ruled on, that that will be the approach by the litigants. Yes, yeah, so we'll wait and see on that one. A case that presents a, a much more commonplace constitutional question is Zappos versus Stevens. It deals with Article Three standing, and in particular, the the facts here are in the context of a a, a data breach. Of course, something fairly common these days. It seems like not a week really goes by where you don't hear about a new company that's had their, their data breached by hackers. So the um, question here is whether or not if someone has their personal data taken as part of a, a data hack, whether that gives rise to standing for a federal, a federal claim or whether 
Instead, there has to be some further injury. The data that was hacked had to be subsequently used by the hacker to a plaintiff's detriment. The Ninth Circuit said that the the breach, the hack, could be enough to to give standing to to a class of plaintiffs here. It seems like a pretty important question, just based on the fact that these sorts of situations occur fairly frequently. So, do you think this particular case has a, a shot, a good chance for a Supreme Court review? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important question, and you probably recall a couple terms ago that the Supreme Court decided a case called Spokio versus Robbins on a similar standing in information internet age area. And the court in that case ruled that it's not enough for standing purposes that a statutory violation has occurred, that there has to be a, a concrete injury in, uh, for, in order for there to be Article Three standing. But it sort of punted on how, the nature of the required injury and whether um, something like your information being hacked uh, would be would be enough for a concrete injury, and so these cases have been have sort of been percolating all over the country in lots of districts and and uh, courts of appeals, and now there's a very clean circuit split. So I I would expect the court uh, to take this case um, or to take a case like it, and especially given sort of what you alluded to that hacking attacks have just become sort of part of life that, you know, these hacks happen all the time and our information is accessed, but very seldom is it accessed in a way that causes anybody any uh, particular harm. And so the, the, you know, the Zappos position and the position of essentially all of my clients is that unless the hack or unless the, some sort of information theft results in some sort of concrete and cognizable harm, it shouldn't give rise to Article 3 standing. And that's, that's what the petition uh, really tees up. As I understand, the the Ninth Circuit ruling isn't just that, okay, if there's a hack, that's enough, you have standing it. It was the fact that there could be, that there was a substantial risk of, I guess, future harm. That was the harm cited, that you would know that the hacker was out there with your information, uh, whether or not he or she had used it yet. And so and that is the the potential injury that, that you might suffer that gives rise to, to standing. Is, is that where the Ninth Circuit is at? And I guess that does seem like it is it a bit at odds with the Spokeo ruling that you reference. I guess maybe Spokeo didn't quite speak to this, but it did seem to suggest that you had to be harmed in some sort of fairly concrete way. I guess that would obviously be the, the chance the court would want to take maybe to, to see if these cases can square or whether or not the Ninth Circuit's reasoning runs afoul of the Spokeo precedent. And if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. And, and, and the, the real, the most difficult cases are those in which the court is grappling with whether there is a real risk of future harm, because I think the plaintiffs in this case would acknowledge that for the vast majority of the class, there has not been any actual harm. What they're concerned is about is my information was stolen and that information, there's a risk that that information will be used in a way that will harm me in the future. And, you know, that's what, those are the most difficult standing questions and and the ones that the courts are really grappling with. I think in this case, there were a couple dozen individuals out of 24 million who have claimed that their data was misused. And it's going to turn, you know, in some cases on the nature of the data. Uh, you know, if someone steals your height, not a lot of risk that your height is going to be misused against you. But if they steal your social security number, maybe there is a greater risk. And so these issues get very complicated. And, you know, the court hasn't really done a lot to draw bright lines in this area. It seems to be just resolving the case before it. And so we'll see 
what we get out of this case if the court takes it. And it's interesting, this case has been sitting at the court since uh, early early December. It hasn't been relisted, so the court's not reconsidering it. It's just sort of sitting there. And the only you know thought I have is whether the court is waiting to decide another case this term that could uh, bear on it, and that's the Frank versus Gauss case, the, uh, the which you know we may want to talk about, which is the Google, the class action against Google, which also raises some standing issues. Okay, that's right. So that's the one dealing with Cypress settlements, uh, whether or not uh, those actions, you where there's a, a small payout to a, each individual class member based on some yeah, sort of minimal online data breach or privacy breach harm, whether or not the, the settlement could mostly go to some third party, perhaps organization that would fight against privacy breaches. Uh, but you're saying there, there's also a standing question as to just whether or not the plaintiffs there had standing? Yeah, that's that's right. The case went up to the Supreme Court as a Cypress settlement case, but then at the oral argument, multiple justices expressed concern that the plaintiff lacked standing and they ordered supplemental briefing after after the argument. And so Frank versus Gauss, which is, you know, as you mentioned, the Cypre case, may end up being a standing case. And so what the court may be doing with the Zappos case is holding it until it decides Frank versus Gauss. And that could be an indication that Frank versus Gauss will be decided on standing rather than on Cypre grounds. That's all total speculation on my part, but that's, you know, how it could play out. I should probably know this, but with, with when the court does order supplemental briefings, as it, as it has in the Frank versus Gauss case, does it typically also hear argument again, or might it still likely decide this case, this term, just based on the additional briefs it gets? It very rarely hears re-argument. It's almost always, it just decides it based on the argument that already occurred. So I, I don't expect another argument in Frank versus Gauss. One other pending petition we might talk about is a case that's now been captioned uh, INRI US. It's dealing with a class of young plaintiffs challenging governmental inaction on climate change and attempts to establish that there's a constitutional right for folks in the U.S. to to have a climate system that's capable of sustaining life. I think the main question in this case is just whether or not this case is ever going to actually get its day in court. It it had a a bunch of preliminary motions filed by the government trying to to prevent a trial, motions to dismiss, summary judgment motions, that the plaintiffs continued to survive in district court in Oregon, and at least a couple of appeals made it up to the Ninth Circuit that were in which the Ninth Circuit said, yeah, it's fine. This case can can go ahead. It survives summary judgment. The government then resorted to the Supreme Court to to step in. The Supreme Court denied that opportunity, though I think sort of hinted in an order on the matter that it was a bit skeptical about just sort of the the breadth of the case, which really challenges sort of the the entire federal government uh, its approach to to climate policy. After that treatment by the Supreme Court, I think the Ninth Circuit granted an interlocutory appeal. So I think now the court, the case is with the Ninth Circuit. What are your thoughts on this case? Do you think it will get a a day in court in Oregon, or might the Ninth Circuit dispense of it at this stage? Did you read anything into what the Supreme Court had to say about it um, last fall? Yeah, it's a very very sort of screwy case. Uh, just, Just in the nature of the of the theory that, you know, the plaintiffs are trying to force the government to basically redo their energy policy through a, you know, constitutional uh, a challenge based on their constitutional rights. It's a very 
bold and, and, and broad attack on the federal government's energy policy. And as you mentioned, the procedural uh, history of this case has been um, been pretty remarkable. The, the district court denied all of the government's motions, and the government tried to go up on man- mandamus to the Court of Appeals. That was denied. Tried to uh, seek inter- interlocutory appeal. That was denied. And so the petition that is actually still pending, I think, before the Supreme Court is a petition for a writ of mandamus. It's not even a cert petition. So the court is trying to get the uh, Supreme Court to take the case basically to review the district court's denial of the government's dispositive motions, which is just, you know, very extraordinary, sort of along the lines of what we started with, where the, the Solicitor General is just being very bold in what it's asking the Supreme Court to do. But as you mentioned, after the the application for a stay was denied by the Supreme Court, it, given the language in the or, in, in the order denying the stay about how you know questionable the the claims are, the district court did an about face and reconsidered its decision denying interlocutory appeal and granted that and or issued a stay of the trial, which was you know set to go in the next in you know in in a matter of weeks. And so now the proceedings in the district court are on ice, and the matter is now at the Ninth Circuit. This mandamus petition of the Supreme Court, I think, has not been has not been ruled on or withdrawn. But I think the government's position was that if they win at the Ninth Circuit, then they w- will withdraw it from the Supreme Court. But you know, it's it's a very extreme case. I you know I would expect the Ninth Circuit to to throw it out, but you never know. The Ninth Circuit has done weirder things. Uh, in, in any event, it'll probably go up to the Supreme Court if it goes on the regular procedural course on appeal from a decision from the Ninth Circuit, given that everything has been stayed pending these appeals. One case that's not going to be heard by the Supreme Court, at least not this term or anytime too terribly soon, is a, a First Amendment free exercise case revolving around a, a high school football coach that would pray after f- football games at the the 50-yard line, I believe, and instead of public high school in, in Washington. He, I believe, was either suspended or uh, terminated from the role as a football coach at the school and sued based on the First Amendment and lost at the Ninth Circuit, which reasoned that had held against the, the coach, I think, based at least part on the reasoning that in that context where he's coaching the football game or has just concluded coaching it, he's still sort of a public employee in that context and and so that he might he's not entitled based on the first amendment to that particular variety of speech the supreme court denied cert but four justices wrote separately or justice alito along with justices thomas gorsuch and kavanaugh wrote separately to voice pretty splenetic concerns about the ninth circuit's approach here and say that they thought the ninth circuit really kind of got it wrong in its analysis I guess a couple of questions. Why, if there are four justices that are so upset about the lower court ruling, didn't they grant cert? And what about the Ninth Circuit's approach did Justice Alito and the other three justices find so problematic? Yeah. Um, So this petition was filed in June, and it wasn't denied until uh, January 22nd. So it was relisted for several months. And we don't know why the justices were, you know, considering it over and over and over again. But reading Justice Alito's opinion that you mentioned, it's it's pretty clear that they were struggling with uh, with these vehicle problems because the reason that these four justices 
wrote this, joined this opinion was not to disagree. It's not a dissent from denial of certiorari. They're not disagreeing with the decision to deny cert. They're just sort of explaining that the denial of cert does not signify that the court disagrees with the decision below. And so, you know, these justices, it's not like they lost the battle to grant, to grant cert. It's just that they ultimately came down on this is not the right vehicle for uh, for deciding these important issues, but they wrote the opinion in order to make clear that they, they do see important issues here and to really express concern over the Ninth Circuit's approach. And to your second question, you know, it's not, it's not totally clear from the opinion where they would come out in the case. They phrase it more in terms of these are important questions and uh, we can't really decide them because the problem was that it was unclear whether this guy, this coach, was fired because he wasn't supervising the high school players, uh, the uh, football players, or whether he was fired because he was uh, praying at the 50-yard line. And if it was because he wasn't, um, you know, supervising students that he was supposed to supervise, then, you know, not really a First Amendment problem or free exercise or, for, or free speech problem there. But if it, the problem was that um, the school district was preventing him from praying after the game was over, then that raises, you know, these important First Amendment issues. And the most interesting thing to me in the opinion was the very last section where Justice Alito notes that the petition was based on the free speech clause and that the petitioner had not teed up for the Supreme Court these uh, free exercise um, clause. And this just reminds me of Masterpiece Cake Shop from last term where it was apparent at the oral argument that all of the justices were sort of grappling with, well, why isn't this a free exercise case? Why aren't we talking about this in terms of the religion clauses of the First Amendment rather than the free speech clause? And Justice Alito you know, sort of signals here how uh, a potential willingness to revisit Employment Division versus Smith, which is you know the 1990 decision written by Justice Scalia that has been the bedrock of free exercise law for you know almost 30 years. And so that to me is the most interesting thing that um, the next one of these cases that goes up could be a really important one if four justices are willing to potentially revisit that decision. What about, I thought the same thing, that piece was very interesting. What about the 1990 decision would be revisited? I guess, what is the test sort of articulated there and why might the court not think that's appropriate at, at this stage? Yeah, so Employment Division versus Smith is the case about peyote and and uh, the the court's holding was basically that a neutral law that you know applies across the board, but which has a sort of adverse effect on someone's religious exercise, is is not not unconstitutional or does not get strict scrutiny. And so uh, a law that says you know you you know you have to show some sort of hostility to religion or that you were singled out for your religion or something like that, it's a much more demanding standard for a free exercise claim and. Remember, Congress, in res it was in response to Employment Division versus Smith that Congress passed RIFRA, which tried to basically undo Smith, at least for the federal government. And so it was a very controversial decision at the time, less controversial now because of the way that you know society has moved, but certainly there are plenty on the conservative side of the legal world who don't like Smith and would love to see much more protection for the free exercise of religion. Okay, so something of a to-be-continued, maybe, in that uh, exactly. that writing. Okay, exactly. then we'll go ahead and jump into 
I guess maybe the the main Ninth Circuit appeal being argued in the second half of this term, there are, I think, four that are up before the Supreme Court, but three of them are fairly esoteric, dealing with, like, uh, one's dealing with a maritime law issue, one bankruptcy case, one dealing, I think, with the Outdoor Continental Shelf Act. Um, but then the fourth one, Emulex versus Barzabedian, we've actually spoken about on this show before, and centers around a securities law question and a pretty interesting circuit split created by by the Ninth Circuit's ruling in in this case, where the Ninth Circuit sort of finds itself alone in a, a split with five other circuits. And the question presented here is whether the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 can support liability that's based on sort of a just a, a negligent misstatement or omission by a, a, a defendant in a, a tender offer when, where parties are companies are, are, are merging. Tell me a bit more about, I guess, just what exactly it means, what exactly a tender offer is, and how the question arises in the case here. We're in the context of a corporate merger, right, where one company makes a potentially negligent or just make, makes a, where there is a, a misstatement or an omission in a um, communication from the company to their shareholders. Is that right? Tell me guess, a bit more about how this case arises. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the the issue is the liability for um, or the standard for liability when you're challenging alleged misstatements or omissions in connection with the tender offer uh, under Section 14E of the Exchange Act. And the question is whether mere negligence in statements in connection with the tender offer can provide the liability, or whether there has to be a scienter requirement, uh, a scienter showing. And the real problem for this case is that, uh, or for you know, companies uh, in this area is that under the 10b-5 standard and and really all securities fraud standards and under the 34 Act, uh, there is this scienter requirement, and the court is treating these cases like fraud cases rather than negligence cases. And so the concern here is that in the context of tender offers, the uh, if if the standard is negligence in the Ninth Circuit, then that is going to open up this whole new area, this new cottage industry for um, securities lawsuits where companies are not going to be able to get out of cases on the pleadings because plaintiffs are always going to be able to satisfy the negligence standard, at least at the motion to dismiss or even the summary judgment stage. And so this would really undo a lot of work that's been done over the years, especially since uh, 10b-5 was issued, where the, the Congress has passed strict pleading standards and the courts have, have acknowledged a, a scienter requirement. And, and so this would really go a long way to undoing that and making the tender offer context a much more uh, precarious area for, uh, for civil litigants or for companies. Yeah, so just to, to drill down a, a tiny bit more on, on the facts, the company here, Emulex, is being acquired by another company and, and recommends to its shareholders that they might do well to, to accept the, the tender offer made by the other company. And the claim is that a document was withheld from what the company sent to the shareholders. And that document showed that um, though the tender offer was within the typical range, was fair, it was um, slightly below maybe the average offer. And and so if you're saying if all the plaintiffs in a case like this have to show is that that omission was negligent and not sort of intentional, not meant to deceive, that cases like this could very easily get to to trial. How, I guess how much, how big of a, 
deal would that be? How much sort of sand it, would that toss in the gears of, of big corporate mergers like the type at issue here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question as, as, as from sort of a practical matter. Um, I, I don't know, like, you know, what percentage of corporate mergers would, would be subject to lawsuits like this. But, you know, just sort of generally speaking, negligence is such a broad and squishy standard that, you know, you can always, if you find something, you know, a document that wasn't disclosed uh, that, you know, w- looking back with 2020 hindsight uh, would have been material or helpful or whatever to the to the transaction, you know, it's very easy to say at the motion to dismiss stage or even at the summary judgment stage that it was negligent not to include this document or it was negligent to make a statement that could be construed any number of ways. Um, it's much harder to plead and then, you know, uh, adduce evidence of scienter, of, you know, intentional, uh, an intent to deceive um, because, you know, generally that's, that's, that's not the case and it's, it's definitely much more difficult to prove. So this would really change the nature of these lawsuits from one where the plaintiffs really have to find something that indicates there was intentional fraud to a sort of a much more loose standard where, you know, plaintiffs may be able to get to juries on, on whether this, this omission or this, you know, sort of loose and imprecise disclosure was negligent in the context of tender offer. Okay. It's, of course, always hazardous to, to forecast how the Supreme Court might come out. But the Ninth Circuit, as you said, is a, a loan on the, the lonely side of the circuit split. And the John Roberts Supreme Court has gotten a reputation as being fairly business friendly. So I, I think probably the most of the, the the money of the Supreme Court gamblers is probably on the side of the Ninth Circuit being reversed here. Would you agree? Yes, I, w- I would uh, definitely agree with that. Um, and also, you know, it's hard to say the court just granted the petition a couple of weeks ago. And so we we haven't seen any of the briefs yet and the amicus briefs haven't been rolling in. But I suspect that there will be a lot of amicus support for the defendant in the case. And and this is one, I guess, the other the other issue here, which is one that was teed up by the Chamber of Commerce and the amicus brief is the nature of or the issue of implying a right of action, because the 34 Act does not actually grant plaintiffs a private right of action to bring, you know, these sorts of suits on a tender offer. Um, that right was implied by the Ninth Circuit, uh, and the Supreme Court has never done that. So there's a chance that the Supreme Court takes the case and says, you plaintiffs cannot file suits under Section 14E. Um, the statute does not give them a private right of action to do so. It's, again, unclear from the briefing how that issue is going to shake out, but that's another interesting wrinkle in the case. Okay, then maybe um, aside from that, ruling to look out for in the spring and early summer, are there any other ones from the Ninth Circuit that that you're looking forward to see how they turn out? We mentioned Frank vs. Gauss um, relating to, to Cypre settlements, and as you said, it's a standing question there. Uh, there's another case, Lamps Plus vs. Barella, argued last fall dealing with arbitration. Always interesting to see how the court comes down and arbitration matters and how they divide. Aside from... Do, it, do you have thoughts on, on those or any other Ninth Circuit appeals that you're looking out for coming down uh, in the next few months? No, th- those are really the two. Um, and both, you know, Frank versus Gauss in particular is going to be really important because Cypre settlements have, have been used a lot and they are not necessarily, well, I guess I should back up. A Cypre settlement, as you alluded to earlier, is one in which 
the money doesn't change hands between the plaintiffs and the defendants. It is given to some sort of third party, a research institute or something, um, as a donation to generally it's to study or uh, or promote progress in the area that the lawsuit's about. And so you have plaintiffs, uh, class representatives filing a lawsuit, a uh, proposed class action. The defendant and the plaintiff settle. The plaintiff's attorneys make off with, you know, sometimes millions of dollars. The named plaintiff, the class representative, will get, you know, some sort of, you know, $10,000 bonus or something. And then the absent class members get nothing. They either get, you know, a very small amount or nothing. And then all of the rest of the money goes to the goes to, like I said, these third party institutes. And, you know, plaintiffs attorneys love this mechanism because they get their, you know, they get their two million dollars from the settlement. Defendants, you know, at least uh, you know, most of the time like these because that's the only way that they're going to be able to settle the case. And they don't want to litigate litigate these cases uh, to, through a jury trial, and the final judgment. And so you have objectors in these cases being the ones to blow up the settlements. And this is a case with Ted Frank. He's this ideological objector to class settlements. He jumped into the case and, and uh, tried to blow up the settlement, and now it's all the way to the Supreme Court. So the rosy story from a defendant's perspective is that if these Cypress settlements are not permissible, then there will be fewer class actions filed because plaintiff's attorneys won't be able to you know, make out with a couple million dollars and, and uh, not have to try the cases. Um, but it's you know it's not clear the defendants prefer that uh, ruling either because in many cases they very much like the Cypress settlement because it makes the settlement possible. Right, and then it concludes that any potential claims that potentially you know huge sized classes could bring against them in in the future. Yeah, um, yeah, and then the Lamps Plus case is is an interesting one too because that's a case in which it is the the defendant corporation. Uh, resisting arbitration while the plaintiff is seeking arbitration. In most of the court's uh, arbitration cases, it's been the other way around. But the reason that the defendant is resisting arbitration is that it's a class arbitration. And the defendant's argument is that we did not agree to a class arbitration and cannot be compelled into one. And the Supreme Court in a prior case called Stolt-Nielsen made clear that you cannot be compelled to a class arbitration um, unless you agree to it. But the question of LAMPS Plus is what needs to be in the arbitration agreement in order to, for a, a party to have agreed to class arbitration? Is language like any and all claims sufficient to um, you know, comprise class claims? Or, what, or does it have to say specifically that a class arbitration is available? And so that'll, that's another one where I would expect it to go the defendant's way, just given the, the Supreme Court's arbitration decisions in the last... 10 years, but um, we shall see. Maybe just one last one. Are there any other, you know, I know we've been focused on the Ninth Circuit, but do you have any general thoughts on, on the second half of the Supreme Court term or, or things that you're looking forward to outside of uh, our uh, our appellate neighborhood here? Well, yes, you know, this would open up a whole other conversation. But for me, the biggest story of the term is likely going to be the administrative law docket. And I'm sort of probably biased in that because I clerked on the D.C. Circuit and these cases all come up from the D.C. Circuit. But there are a few cases. There's an, a case called Azar, Gundy versus United States on the non-delegation doctrine. And then this case, Kaiser versus Wilkie, which is a challenge to our deference. And these are really fundamental administrative law cases that the Supreme Court has taken 
that could really dramatically reshape the administrative state, depending on how the Supreme Court decides them. And there's a whole bunch of amicus briefs um, taking all sorts of different positions in the case. We still don't know where the federal government's going to come come out on the uh, on, in Kaiser on our deference. Uh, I think the government's brief is due like next week or something. Um, so that to me is where I'm most excited for the second half of the term to see what the Supreme Court, in particular, it's two new justices who have been very vocal on their views on uh, administrative law and Chevron deference and our deference. It will be fascinating to see how they all come out on that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like an accident that that uh, the focus of, of this term and a lot of those cases are coming up now with those two new justices in ensconced. Yep. Yep. That's definitely true. Well, we'll leave it there for now and stay tuned for, uh, I'm sure will be a very interesting second half of the Supreme Court term. Blaine Evanson, partner with Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Thanks very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. And that is our podcast for February 8th, 2019. Thanks both to Hirsch Foraganti and Blaine Evanson for being on the show. Thanks to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. If you'd like to receive one hour of CLE credit for listening to this podcast, just log into our site at dailyjournal.com and find a short true-false test on the page where this podcast appears. Complete that, and an hour of credit can be yours. Also, don't forget to look for us on the podcast app and other streaming avenues by searching for Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.